Good afternoon, everybody. Hey. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, real-time engines such as Unreal and, and Unity have been transforming how long-term, long-form and episodic animation is made, uh, spawning entirely new creative opportunities for storytellers like us at Nexus. And based on recent R&D and groundbreaking projects with uh, a focus on non-photoreal aesthetics and live entertainment, uh, there's immense perks of adopting this kind of technology, including you know, animation via puppetry, like this, mm -hmm. and, uh, and performance capture and uh, immediate real-time rendering. Um, Academy Award-winning director, Patrick Osborne, me, and Nexus Studios' uh, head of immersive, Pablo Colapinto. Is that how I say your name? Yep. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> we're going to deep dive right now uh, with you guys into these new tools. Uh, we're going to reveal the hows and whys of uh, virtual production means and, and, and kind of speak towards the future of the promise of making uh, characters this way. So here they are now. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. What, does, your, does the character have a name? No, I, I, it's just me. All right. Um, so thanks, Patrick. But e. I would force myself to wear this outfit three weeks ago when I chose to color him that way. Uh, so, how's everybody doing? Good. <laughs> um, uh, thanks for coming to our, our talk. I'm actually filling in for Sarah, who couldn't make it today, unfortunately. So, uh, you get me. Sorry about that. But I'm going to. Um, <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Nexus Studios and who we are and what we do um, briefly, and then I'll hand it over to, to Patrick to talk a little bit more behind the scenes about what you just saw and, and some of the other areas in which it's being applied. And then, time permitting, I might jump back on and talk about a, a special project we did, uh, and then definitely leave time for questions. So Nexus Studios is a uh, global creative studio. Uh, we work across uh, episodic and film um, and uh, original content, branded content, and immersive. Um, lately, those divisions are pretty arbitrary, and we're seeing that boundary blur quite a bit as we push more towards next generation entertainment. Next generation entertainment being inherently more immersive as we find more um, ways of connecting to audiences in new ways, using technology to do that. Um, so we're finding new ways of building uh, uh, animation and animation pipelines and new ways uh, for you all to see it. And whether that's an AR or XR on a headset or through a live stream um, on, a, on an experience on Twitch or on, on Vimeo or YouTube. Um, so we're trying to, the boundaries between the creator and the audience is also blurring uh, as we start to build more real-time pipelines together. Uh, here's a little video. Oh, cool. We can make it further, rerun it, and don't look back. It's a light at the end of the tunnel if you stay on track. So hard to lose like that. Sing it back. All the boys and girls, you'll get a shot. 
Patrick earlier, I don't know that song. Is that like a popular song? Anyway, so um, we work with, um, it's really nice because we can work, we work with all sorts of different um, brands uh, and tech partners, um, all trying to find new ways of connecting um, uh, with their audiences. Uh, and in doing so, um, we get to act as uh, premium experimenters. You know, uh, we have our own R&D that we do in-house. Uh, we can work with um, uh, product designers who are trying to figure out a new OS for AR glasses, or we can work with uh, an entire IP campaign. Uh, and I sometimes say that we actually are kind of psychologists in that regard, too, because we're always trying to get to the, to the bottom of what it is that people are actually um, thinking or wanting, wanting to do with their, with their work with their products or whether we're with their campaigns. Um, that's our intro. I'm going to hand it over to Patrick uh, to talk about the, yes. the meat. So uh, I've been, uh, I'm Patrick. I've been in, I started as a character animator uh, about 20 years ago at, at Sony Imageworks and worked it uh, there for a while and then Disney for almost a decade um, and got to be involved in really cool projects, uh, Paperman and Feast, specifically these two shorts that I spent about four years between the two of them working on. And um, one of the things that always, like, like when you're a kid, maybe this is just, I was a weird kid that played around with 3D tools in the 90s, but I was always, I always thought that, like, it would be so neat if, if you, or the impression of working on Toy Story back then was, like, maybe you could take this 3D object and this other one and you, you would put them together and they would, exist in a physical world and they'd understand each other. But when you first open up the tools, you realize those spheres like slide through each other and it's all an illusion and it's really hard. And um, it's not this like little virtual workbench where things is things are physical and real and um, and all that. At least it wasn't 20 years ago, but we're heading towards a spot where this kind of dream is possible. You know, you look at these people, these creators that have their YouTube streams, uh, Adam Savage on Tested and Casey Neistat are these two workshops and there are these like dream spaces where um, that the vibe that anything you can think of can be created in that space because there's all these tools and things accessible and um, but there's a limit to even these spaces because they're ex they exist in the physical world you know things can't float things can't uh, glow uh, unnaturally like physics actually limits what you make but wouldn't it be cool if animation existed as every kid thinks it actually does in this kind of virtual simulated world uh, where things are actually live? And um, we're kind of heading towards making ways of work that feel like that with virtual production workflows and real-time tools. And I'm excited to you know, dig into all that stuff. Um, so this is, I want that feeling. Though. I want that feeling that we're kind of working on this stuff. I'm always jealous when I see people working on stop motion. You know, it's very tangible and... Um, physical and there and it looks beautiful in the moment there's a certain like joy to crafting that there's these are behind the scenes from uh, an amazing uh series that nexus made last year called the house on netflix these beautiful stop-motion horror films um or kind of i don't know if they call them horror what do you guys call them psychological thriller films they're wonderful but like there's something such so cool about being able to like move the objects with your hands and like react to the light as you see it and be inspired in the moment. And in the traditional CG pipeline of the last 20 years, you don't really get much of that. Um, you know, typical CG pipeline is a lot of gray, ugly, shaded stuff, and you have to kind of imagine how it's going to look moving forward. If you share that with anyone who doesn't have knowledge of how it all works, it becomes a lot of hand-waving, like, I promise you it'll look pretty later, which I'm sure a lot of you know. And um, 
it's way cooler to be able to kind of work in a way that represents at least a version of what it plans, what you plan on it looking like. You get a little bit of that stop motion, or maybe you even call it live action set kind of vibe, but with all the, without all the limits of like weather and physics and and stuff that actually comes with live action set. Uh, a couple of Disney films I had worked on, they would bring in uh, these really famous DPs, you know, cinematographers to. Uh, give advice and they would show these like legends who look through a lens and react this like gray shaded world with no light and no real lens. And they often they were just like, what are we looking at? I don't understand how I can even help you guys because the, the, the art is actually like the instinct. It's not um, kind of thinking about their planning for the future as much as, as it is like looking through a lens and reacting. Um, so you see a lot of these kind of like, the, the beautiful shots that we're used to seeing in, in these huge movies have just like thousands and thousands of pieces and uh, and really only a few people even in, this, in the process quite know it, how it's all going together and it takes thousands of people just to kind of get that to come together to do each part and then to, to wrangle their talent to make it happen. Uh, when you have things happening in real time and in the moment, there's less explaining. It's a little more obvious what you're trying to do while you're making the project. So... You know, I we, we we call this the WYSIWYG pipeline. What you see is what you get, which means that as you look at the film, as you're making it, it looks like a version uh, that could be finished. It, it, you're going to have notes. You're going to have ideas about how to make it better. But, you know, I want the one on the left to be what it looks like when I'm animating and the one on the right to, to be the finished, and I want them to look the same. And um, not possible at all 20 years ago, 10 years ago, kind of. And now it's starting to be very possible and even possible in styles like this that are non-photorealistic and, and illustrative. And uh, that's kind of like the dream way of working that I'm trying to get to because work as a director involves like so many pitch decks and explaining to people your vision already that anything that can cut out a little bit of that and just make it obvious to any artist that you can let them empower the individual who's doing like whatever part of this they have, uh, to see what they're doing and how it impacts the whole is always going to be better, uh, in my opinion. You know, and I, this is enabled now by incredibly powerful modern graphics cards and software like Blender's EV, uh, Unity, or Unreal Engine, which are the main uh, sources of our, uh, you know, uh, are the kind of main tools in our, in our belt now. And uh, those aren't our images; those are their demo images. But as far as the tool goes, though. We don't really, we're kind of agnostic to the actual um, package, software package. They're all similar and they all have their kind of like pluses and minuses depending on what your end goal is. So uh, I'll talk about a few projects that we, that, I, that I've done with Nexus uh, in the last like, year and a half or so. Uh, this one is, uh, Tape Deck is a Time Machine is a series that we are, we made a teaser for and uh, that's probably all I can say exactly about that. But uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the teaser itself and how we made it and what it comes from. And for me, it all starts with like a real uh, inspiration, a little piece of story at the center of everything. And, um, and I try to keep track as a filmmaker of like everything that inspires me or that um, I think is interesting or cool or that could be like the gem, of, or the little germ of an idea, and write them all down in you know, a notes app or in a sketchbook. And whenever I am trying to figure out why an idea isn't quite working, I can usually like flip through one of these books and try to like add another layer of something else 
that I think is cool into an already existing idea. And usually the kind of mix of these several inspirations can create something totally different and unexpected. And um, one thing that went into the story was this idea that like a, a musical playlist is as close of a thing to a time machine as that we have because you can you can hear a song in like a grocery store and uh, you're just walking around buying eggs or something one second and then you hear Atlantis Morissette's You Ought to Know and you're instantly in your minivan with your mom and your brother's getting in trouble for playing the tape because it has an F-bomb in it and like these memories just come flooding back. Is it, wouldn't it be cool to, to, to base a story on that and combine that with this idea that I had an aunt that... Um, you know, I didn't ever know very well, and uh, my aunt had a, a roommate. Uh, you know, in the in the eighties, they called her a roommate, and um, they were really in, they were cool people. They had a tiki bar. They smoked cigars. Um, they died when I was a, they both died a long time ago when I was a kid, and I realized growing up that I didn't know them at all. And how cool would it have been to actually know my aunts as peers and not? Just the you know these elderly people that we would visit sometimes, and uh, the combination of those two ideas is kind of the root of where this story is. And uh, we have a little teaser to share here. You can turn it up. Do I have to press again? Yeah. Cool. Oh, no. Can you press play? I'll, I'll grab it. Thank you. Yeah. Turn it up. Really up.
really cool about these things is once you have the assets made in real time, uh, you can then use these characters over and over again to do other things with them. You're able to put you know, them in TikTok dance videos and have them do reaction, music reaction videos themselves. So this something that's really cool as a director about being able to actually kind of um, take that space and take that sequence and recut it and reshoot it and change your camera angles and everything. And it doesn't ruin everything like it typically does when you're making animated films. So, you know, normally that would send things back 10 departments to fix everything and rework. But it's all working in a, in a live space pretty well. And you can go in there and use it for all kinds of other cool stuff, which is huge. It's, like, it's creatively, like, just, it just opens up so many possibilities. Um, I think these ones did kind of work with the clicker. Um, so and the, the other side of like real-time being an advantage, uh, other than actually making stuff that is kind of uh, typical content where it's meant to be watched on you know, screens and devices, uh, is actually being able to use it to uh, puppeteer characters. So this is me, the beginning of, of lockdown. I moved back to Los Angeles from Connecticut, and uh, we were looking for a place to live. And in my uh, in-laws' garage, I set up a little uh, like mocap, like studio, little well, a chair with a uh, with a camera pointed at me. Really, uh, that was, and I started playing around with uh, with Blender EV, the real-time uh, renderer that just had come out, and realized that you can actually, in a few hours, get a puppet from a model up to like something that you can actually kind of perform as, and how cool is it to actually kind of like embody a character for a second? Normally in animation, you spend so much time posing each facial pose, um, but you don't really get to like kind of get inside of a character and act. And I think that's really like neat to think about doing. So, and it, and it changes the way you perform a little bit, or who that character is to you. Uh, so at Nexus, when we get um, uh, brands that come to us, sometimes they'll have a germ of an idea, but one of the things that I like to do is try to inject my own passions into it uh, a little bit and kind of bend it to be something that I feel like will be really special and new. And we, um, a couple of years back at the beginning of COVID, or actually the summer-ish, uh, we were approached by Cox uh, Cable, a uh, cable company here in the U.S. Um, I don't know if they're in Austin, but I think they're Las Vegas-centered. And they wanted to animate a kid's play uh, that had been canceled. There was this Las Vegas performing arts school for 6th and 7th graders who had to cancel their play, and uh, how cool would it be to kind of put them in an animation? Of course, like the traditional way of doing that is incredibly difficult and expensive and takes forever. Um, and uh, I thought it would be really neat. I've been playing around with those puppeteering experiments. Why don't we try to do that with the kids? So what we did is we built a little cart with a, two documentary cameras, some lights, little motion capture facial setup, uh, iPad setup, and another computer where I could direct these kids and we uh, wrote a little, you know, kind of behind-the-scenes school play, three-minute-long thing with 26 speaking roles because I didn't want to fire any children. And, um, <laughs> and we actually, like, took these carts and wheeled them into, like, had their parents uh, wheel them into a cool spot. Like, I was looking through, I was in my house looking through these, these lenses, these uh, black magic cameras, into these these kids' houses and trying to find like a nice angle and light them nice using their parents as scripts, essentially, <laughs> which was awesome. And uh, we got to make this little uh, both documentary and uh, short film that was it. So here, take a look at that.
It's definitely sad that we can't put on the play at school. Being away from my drama friends, I can't really connect to anyone. anything like this so hopefully you guys think this is as cool as I do I think this is really different and weird and awesome hands up if you're ready to start top of the page the director approaches a sheepish mouse I'm not going out there there's like a thousand people maybe a billion yeah I think that works great fairy godmother swings by Logan if you draw me I am so breaking up with you when you're not looking at it there's nothing but when I look the little face appears how are you? Don't worry, Gracie. The curtain only goes up when we all have a part to play. I believe in you, Terrence. Uh... A play without Gracie is like a unicorn without a horn. A fairy godmother without a wand. Toadstools without toes. Or stools. Ah, helping! My parents are in the audience. No pressure. cartoon was just, it was just so cool. I think it just turned out amazing. I'm like so grateful that I had this opportunity. I honestly can't believe that we did that. <laughs> it's crazy. Like my first thought was just shock because like I did that. I was a part of that. I've actually like accomplished something during COVID and like actually interacted with people. You know, it, it did bring us all closer. So I'm very grateful for that. It seems almost impossible to have that all converge together into one beautiful performance, but we're actually able to make that happen. It's, it's super wonderful to see come together. It's perfect. I use real fungus. Ew! Gross. How's it going, Luis? I'm not going out there. So many people looking at me. I'm gonna be sick. Just pretend that everyone in the audience is in their underwear and you'll be fine. My parents are in the audience. Yeah, everyone except them. <sighs> Logan, I swear if you drop me, I'm so breaking up with you! How's it coming, Terrence? Uh, he still hasn't figured out how to get me in the play. Don't worry, Gracie. The curtain only goes up when everyone has a part to play. I believe in you, Terrence. Uh, it should have been tree number five. Whoa, okay, I got you. Uh-oh, whoa, watch out for those audio cables. Don't want to lose your better half. Better for who? The left, the other ah. left. A play without Gracie is like a unicorn without a horn. A fairy godmother without a wand. A witch without a broom. Ooh, ooh like toadstools without toads or stools. Not helping. No pressure. One minute. Okay, Terrence, tell me you've got something. I'm sorry. <sighs> I'm not gonna be in the play. Am I? Am I? I am not going out there without Gracie. Neither am I. Nice try, Louise. Dang. The curtain doesn't rise unless we all have a part. For sure. Yeah. Um, a little help? <gasps> I need that audio cable. Quick, everyone give him a hand. Come on, get him over here. 
Cos Cable extended that to be about as much content as possible. There's bloopers. There's like 20 minutes of stuff for a three-minute short. But uh, uh, now uh, Pablo's going to take you through um, the the latest stuff in kind of our location-based immersive. Yeah. Thanks, Patrick. I love I love that every time. It's so cool. Um, okay, so uh, switching gears just a little bit, but. Um, we wanted to walk you through a case study of, of what it means when we're actually able to make real-time ready uh, characters. Um, I was in Times Square uh, last December, um, and then the next day in Piccadilly. I wasn't in Piccadilly Circus, but basically um, people drove about up to 12 to 15 hours to see the gorillas perform at Times Square uh, on their mobile phones uh, in AR. And it was a magical experience. Uh, we actually made an entire music video out of it as well. Um, really uh, a new archetype in what you can kind of do to bring entertainment to the streets to, um, to fans. And they were delighted, you know, to, to see their heroes at, at uh, architectural scale uh, playing, in, playing in Times Square. Uh, you can still go until June, I believe, to see them. They're still there, the gorillas, performing live for you. <laughs> um, uh, or you can go to Piccadilly Circus. So, But I think probably closer for you to go to Times Square. Um, so uh, how did we do that? Where did it start? So um, you know, Patrick was talking a little bit about um, making, uh, making characters that can be uh, puppeted. Um, and... Um, yeah, he and has developed all sorts of techniques for how you make characters that 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 are that are real time ready. The first step was um, bringing gorillas uh, into three D. Um, 
which uh, led to uh, creation of a music video, uh, Cracker Island featuring Thundercat. I don't know that we're playing that here. We might play it later. Um, but that enabled us to uh, bring the gorillas into all sorts of uh, new experiences. Um, from the Skinny Ape music video, which we'll play in a little bit, um, silent running videos, uh, teasers, um, collaborations with brands. There was a mixology class uh, that Murdoch was able to perform for uh, Smirnoff, where uh, he could uh, log into a YouTube stream and, and watch um, him make a Mer Merdini? Merdini, I think it was called? Mertini? Merdini. Uh, um, uh, all in real time. And then you can interact with him as a, as a fan uh, and ask him questions. And he could crack jokes and be his, his typically, uh, um, you know, caustic self. Um, this culminated for us, and then there was a listening party too we did, uh, where, uh, which we'll also play for you. But it culminated for us in this, in this immersive experience in Times Square. Um, this is the music video, you can see this. Uh, all with uh, 3D characters, and the Gorillas Presents that we did in Times Square and Piccadilly uh, using uh, Google's geospatial API. So the, the phones are actually um, know exactly where they are using a sort of version of GPS called VPS. Um, so content can be placed exactly uh, where you expect it should be on a building. Um, the phones are able to localize, is the terminology we use or it is used in the tech field, um, to know exactly where you're pointing the camera, and then you can put uh, AR content right at, at architectural scale. I'm going to play the video, I think, right now, actually, give you a better sense of it. So we were able to make this vi music video in, uh, on the mobile phones themselves. Uh, so we went out to Times Square and uh, um, filmed the... Um, the FX Gobi directed it, filmed an entire uh, music video just using the uh, Apple cameras on the on the phones. Thanks. Very cool. Check it out. If you go, uh, bring headphones. And um, it's really really remarkable. I think that we're able to do uh, accomplish that with the tech available today. So it's like, you know, a, a live performance for fans to go and it just lives there um, in AR. Um, also, the, I just want to make a note, the, those screens, the screen takeover that you saw, sort of a full Times Square takeover of the screens, that was also done in, in, on the phone. So it was a screen, screen space takeover um, in AR. It's really cool. Um, and I, we can answer questions about that in the Q&A. <laughs> Can I go to the next slide this way? It's just playing it again. Um, I mentioned we did a live listening party um, uh, when the album was released. Uh, I think there's a video of that too, which is really cool. Here we go. Yeah, I'll let him charm you directly. Yes! Cracker Eye! Can you turn it up, please? Featuring Thundercat. Oh! Wow! What a bloke, and what an honour for him, obviously, to have collaborated with me. Yeah. Chance of a lifetime for the guy, to be honest. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. You can bang out a decent bass riff. Yes. All right, all right. He's got a solid falsetto. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. He brought some nice vibes and tasty licks to the track, etc., etc. But you know, let's not get carried away. <laughs> so, anyway, here we go. Hit it, DJ. I.e. press play 2D. On Cracker Island it was born To the collective of the dawn Yes. Sometime. Easy. Um, we have some time uh, for Q and A, um, so please feel free. I guess step up to the microphone. You can ask more questions uh, to Patrick or, or myself about the processes uh, or what we're doing next. Cool. Thanks, Pablo. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. If anybody is interested in anything related to, uh, I guess, real-time animation or anything else um, that that's in our wheelhouse. Are we live on this? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Hi. That was great. Good to meet you. Um, I, I come at it from an animatic background. I've been doing that for commercial work for many, many years. And, of course, that's evolved a lot in itself. And I just wonder... Although maybe not quite as sexy, I wonder: Do you see some of these pre these uh, tools being used in the previous part of production more often and embraced more widely? Are they De at that definitely? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think previs uh, like the whole like Avatar one. James Cameron made all of this custom stuff to do his like previs and then polish most of that. You can mostly do that in a garage now. Like the 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 lift that was those millions and millions of dollars of equipment has kind of democratized in a nice way because of the economies of scale of a cell phone sensors, essentially. And um, I find that any time you already have assets built or something that's not just a sketch, it's useful to use that in creating the con whatever you're, we're making. If you have a scene that happens in a room and you've got the set, you should be previsiting in that room so you're not redoing stuff later. It just, it just It's nice to like have things built to the proper scale, and if you have the characters, you should use them, because you're just going to, you know, um, it's going to make everything else easier down the line. Like anytime you can ha think of it, think of the entire thing as like a sketch to final, where you're just filling in the detail mm -hmm. along the way, you're going to be so much better. And um, yeah, I will, I will pre well stuff myself in Blender using like a, you know motion capture on a cell phone or whatever to do cameras totally uh, all the time and. Uh, it's it's usually pretty helpful. No matter what software you use, you can always export the geo and motion data to something else and have that be useful somewhere else. You know? And you find it's also in the spot world where you're in shorter format, shorter storytelling as opposed to long format. Yeah, and you don't save as much. The economies of scale aren't there as much on the shorter things. Like you just have to make everything quick, and sometimes drawing it is always going to be faster. But like like a storyboard instead of a previs. But like if it's any size, if it's like a minute or more, you're going to start to get 
advantages in actually building some stuff out and pre-visiting instead of storyboarding. Thank you. Yeah, Thank sure. you. It's great. Thanks. So this is probably kind of a different question, but I got a more traditional TV and film background, and I'm just wondering if what hurdles or barriers, if any, is there in incorporating more of this into traditional film and TV, and, and are there challenges in working with kind of the studios, Hollywood, and or legacy brands even um, in using this time to kind of get them to adapt this technology and use this? Well, everybody is pretty excited about it. Like, studios tend to be, like, if it feels like it's going to save money, <laughs> or time, you know, people like that. I think the whole, you know, uh, stagecraft, Mandalorian, virtual production style of things that extended Magic Hour infinitely was really good for Magic Hours, you know, in general. But like, it doesn't work great for everything. So I think, um, but yeah, there, there's definitely not a resistance to adapting any of this stuff. I don't know if you, you feel there's enthusiasm across the board. I mean, that's yeah. why yeah. Nexus is hired. We're we're generally hired as experimenters, like. Uh, as it said earlier, like premium experimenters, which means like there's an R&D uh, lift that you need to make, but hopefully that pays off later. And that's what and studios pay us to do it. And that's nice to, that's what, that's what you do. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that um, we're also still, you know, we're, we're also serving as a bridge to the, to the game engine um, teams themselves too, Unity and, and, and Epic as well to, to help get the engines more, they were never designed with that in mind, right? So there's a lot of work we did. I mean, all of the tape deck work that you saw um, Patrick did, I really want to underline, that was all done in Unreal Engine, which is insane. Um, and there was a lot of work that uh, the yeah, next We did that with the Mega that. Grant, and the reason why that Mega Grant was possible is because the, most of Unreal Engine work is done to be photoreal or done in the stagecraft right. side of things and to do... Uh, artistically directed cartoon shaders that look like illustrations was not something that's easy to do in Unreal at that time. So the the research we were doing essentially was to push that forward. On the TV side, though, I think it, everything is like a cost-benefit kind of about I was just going to ask, what, yeah. what would the cost of something like, and I mean numbers-wise, yeah. but is something like that cost-effective in not terms of long-form two-hour movie, but like short-form 30-minute to 60-minute episodes? It can or be. Will yeah. it, will like, is it getting there, I guess, maybe? Is it... For me, long-form long -form animation is anything over the, uh, more than five minutes. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Different, different backgrounds, different media. <laughs> yeah, but I think like uh, anything where you can reuse a set, it's a similar kind of economy of scale that you would if you build a soundstage set. You still need to build, you have to do the art direction, or assemble the assets, maybe, if you're doing something that uh, licensing allows for that kind of thing. Like a lot of, when you think about these game engines, is they have a lot of people making trees, assets, buildings, things that you can use out of focus that could build a world out that would be bigger than you would maybe get on a normal television budget set um, that you could do with uh, the LED wall or just a projection. You know, that works too sometimes. There is a certain technical lift, but there's also a ton of studios who have started making these little like hubs, like little set stages for that. Yeah. So it's there actually is like a, but probably a, a way to do it even if you're small. Um, I love it. The Disney ones cost you know hundred thousand dollars a day or something, but but there's a way to make yeah. like kind of you know if there was one here in Austin, Texas, I'm sure there is. Rent out. Like, there's got to be. Okay. I don't know of it, but. Um, a lot of places that even do commercials have started building them because yeah. the, just a corner of their warehouse yeah. can be set up for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Greetings. 
thank you for all of this, by the mm-hmm. way. But I guess my question is kind of similar to that as far as the, because I'm a producer and I'm thinking more of the cost for it. And is it feasible to do something in Unreal or should I just go to a studio that already has all their animators and things like that? So that cost benefit analysis is what I'm looking at. And just your thoughts, if you could say a little bit more towards that. If you're thinking of, if, it's, if you're using like actors and it's the backgrounds and the sets that you're talking, like more like Mandalorian does. Mm-hmm. It's just about the ma- the cost of the assets to make, you know, like, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, is it, do you think it would be feasible, let's say, just because everyone has seen Ar- Arcane, to do something that visually looks like Arcane, Arcane, but have the creativity to do something else other than what the, you know, that particular scene is for? It's like, let's try it a different yeah. way. And it, it's not cost prohibitive to do it that way if you already have all this built. So I'm thinking like that. It's like changing stuff on the fly as you're doing it because the, it serves the story better or serves the project better. Yeah, it's... Arcane is the example of like kind of the opposite in a way because it's like so bespoke to camera and it's an illustration. A lot of it is background and painting and and they painted the characters even to that camera angle in some some cases, which is super cool if you can make your pipeline work efficiently. That that isn't like a huge cumbersome deal. I think the stylizing of what what I'm excited about with this kind of tool set is the combo of stylizing like doing a little bit of a mocap animation where you didn't even build a character, it's just a generic character, but then you use machine learning and future AI tools to stylize that in an adjacent way. So mm. how can you use those kind of like StyleGAN, uh, EBSynth style stuff? Like it's all to, to kind of like turn your sketch into something that looks more polished and finished. And those tools aren't quite there, but I think that's where that will happen. It still is... Like doing any bespoke motion, like keyframing something by hand, is always gonna take a while and to get it right. And it's just, and really the, all it is is human time that it takes to put the attention on that thing for that long. And that's why Arcane, but Arcane looks so good because they spent seven years you know, animating it. Uh, Thank you. And that's all. Yeah. Cool. So kind of a segue from that. Um, yeah, it's clear to see the the cost and efficiency benefits of all this. But I'm curious. Um, if there are any drawbacks you you guys both see to the artistry of it, like, you know, both in terms of like the differences between acting and embodying a character on a camera when you act uh, versus creating that by your hand. And like, sure, it takes human time, but it also takes a certain kind of human artistry. And um, so what's lost in this process? I'd be curious to hear like off the top of your head, what, if anything about it, gives you pause and then also on top of that um you know sort of related to questions about ai the invasion of ai into like taking over um different digital art jobs like how you see this kind of technology related to that and related to a a supposed or or any kind of perceived threat to the craft of the animator yeah i think well a lot of the visuals, the visual fidelity is dependent on the devices usually. In the case of something like the gorillas in Manhattan, you still have to deal with phone processors and the uh, the rendering capabilities in real time of those things. In the composite onto the surfaces, it's all... There are visual limits to that. Those characters were keyframes uh, it, for the most part, it looks like, at least to me. Uh, I didn't direct that. That's FX Gilby. He's awesome. But... Um, it, but you are limited to that. For the little puppet I had at the beginning, it's limited to my laptop's graphics card. You know, but 
those are getting crazy and powerful. And um, so for me, the mocap versus keyframe thing isn't really a question of real time. It's still a question of how you get your motion. Like I worked, my first job was on Polar Express, so I have a deep <coughs> worry of how mocap. I have an understanding yeah. of how it can go wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and why. And, and like a lot of the tools 20 years ago were really cumbersome. Like you couldn't play anything real time and you can't really watch it happen in front of you. And the real time playback and all that makes it easier to polish motion capture and puppetry in a cool way. Um, I think what's fun about the little uh, Xbox controller puppet is there's like a goofiness and brokenness that is in it that's cute sometimes. Yeah. So, it's, But if you want really art-driven poses and keyframe animation, you still have to do that, but real-time is cool because you don't have to wait to press play and watch it. Like, There's no like 20-minute play blast or send it off overnight to render before you can tell what it looks like. And I think that still makes you a lot faster, even if you are animating by hand everything. Uh, and, and those are just different styles and, and looks and keyframing everything is always going to be a little like slower, um, but it's all it's very made with intention, which is beautiful, and the artist is behind it. Um, I think the AI stuff has a lot of things to figure out. Um, yeah, yeah. And there's currently a few lawsuits out there that are working on it. The Getty Images thing is big. I think copyright in general is probably needs a relook at in the context of that, like what it all means, fair use and all that. So, but I think, you know, I, I started working at Disney when 2D was like dying, it, it's death throes. Like it was a very conflicted time of 2D animators and CG, and they there was a lot of like internal at the studio, like. Headbutting, yeah, and uh, and it was really a resistance to learning anything new. Like that, you get on a you get on a train of like this is how things are made, and this is the way, and you fetishize the craft a little too much, and then you don't open yourself up to the possibilities of you know what it can do. But now there's way more 2D animation made now than there was in the 90s. Like hands but down, Disney, not Disney, but everywhere in the world, you know, uh, they still have a few people there that do it, but. Um, <laughs> You know, they, it's just, you know, for the big studios, if it, if the public doesn't see it as fresh and shiny, then they can't justify spending that much money on the movies. So that's why they, they always chase the shininess. But, um, but there's like, if you, back then there's like two places you could go to animate 2D quality. And now there's like 30 in the world that you can still do it. And so I think it's actually like more animation despite the technology of CG coming in. And I don't think AI is going to kill any creativity or anything, but there'll be different stuff. Yeah, um, just more stuff to plug into, yeah. more more ways of plugging things. Though there needs to be, there definitely needs to be like, um, you know, guardrails put onto it and the law is going to have to figure it out. And it's kind of scary that like the people that make those decisions are like 80 <laughs> and uh, not at South by Southwest. So like, are they going to make the right calls? I don't know. Right. So, Thanks. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, for drawn closer, uh, you showed the real-time facial capture, but I was curious about the the physical animation of the body and also the the costuming. Was that actually done by an animator or yeah? How yeah, the yeah. drawn closer is keyframes, bodies, and faces cleaned up. We we got like fifty percent quality stuff out of the kids. Okay, like it's hard to get kids to like. Yeah, I was curious about like, that. Like, yeah. moving all over while they're motion right. capturing, and I'm not there to, like, say, sit still. Right. Really? So 
it was more of a like how do we get the playfulness out of them it's like wearing a mask as right. an actor and okay. then they can see the character and kind of push it right and it gave them bigger performances because it requires you to be a little bit bigger. So but but for the physical animation, it wasn't motion capture of the yeah. body or anything of that. Okay, great. Yeah. And then for the concert, if I ask, is it, uh, for the Times Square, is it better at a particular time because nighttime, right, the contrast? Or uh, it doesn't matter? Like, you know, how, how do you guys... Yeah, that's yeah. a good question. I, I mean, ultimately, um, it's beautiful at twilight, right? Yeah. Uh, just because the screens are doing their thing, right. it still works at night. It's incredible. I mean, magic hour is always beautiful, I guess. But the um, right. uh, it's really quite remarkable that it works at night against you know you're basically using um, you're basically using um, you know it's it's localized it's it's getting depth information and and, and edge detection on the screens that are having LEDs changing colors constantly so right. how it even works is kind of a mystery to me but it does work at night uh, you sometimes need it takes a little longer to to register where the phone is got it okay great thank you so much thanks super inspired everything's really cool um Patrick you were talking about uh using AI in the future and I was wondering as an animator if you think there might be something where you like build a tool set so right now we've got stable diffusion you could just like feed it a whole bunch of images and like spit out your own style do you think that there's going to be a future where animators can like make a motion set and like define how our character moves like do all the walk cycles reactions etc yeah. and then like make animation produ production like way quicker because we could like maybe run it through an AI and yeah, that then, like, exists. go through like, in SIGGRAPH this year, there was a paper NVIDIA had that they did exactly that. They trained mm. a game character. It's like a guy, you know, a first-person shooter mm. game character. They trained it for 10 virtual years to learn to walk. And then you can just tell it, walk from here to there and sit down, and it does it. And style transfer of motion is, in theory, like less complicated than style transfer of, like, artistic style. You know, make it snappier, make it more Disney, make it, like, Warner Brothers style. So I don't I think the future version of animation is like all the background stuff is that and the animator is even more of the actor bringing the emotion and the performance to the core of the main characters and you just don't have to worry about the stuff that's out of focus or in the dark. So I think it's a hugely helpful thing soon um, <laughs> when someone gets the uh, puts it into a package. You know the problem with those papers is they're just like they're cool ideas that they don't they're not usable yet by a lot of people and you need you need some some of those companies to integrate into their packages whatever whether it's Blender or Maya or whatever but I'm sure it's coming I'm sure they're working on it because it's obvious that that would save so much time yeah. <laughs> um, it would kind of eliminate one of the entry jobs which is a worry like one of the things you do when you start animating is do crowds and backgrounds and if the computer's doing that I don't know who's like doing like the learning part um it's a little interesting, but yeah, I think we have like a minute left, right, or two. So maybe, sorry, sorry, line, but you can find us later. We can do one more, I think. I mean, um, my question was pretty similar, but like around Corridor Digital just released their rock, paper, scissors using the animation shader with AI. Yeah. I was wondering if you guys had done any research and development specifically around real-time Unreal and that pipeline of sending stuff to AI and then back, because they were also using Unreal. Yeah. So it's like, if you guys have any AI, uh, we're actively researching a lot of a lot of AI plugins stuff. that you like. Yeah, um, I was on their couch last year in December. Amazing! It Gotta was, look up that. It was that, weird. That video. No, they're very nice people. I, I think they have every good intention of 
of like just doing creative stuff with it, you know, mm -hmm. but they got a lot of flame for that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we're, uh, you know, we're definitely, I mean, every studio in this space is looking at, see what, at least to be aware of what it is. Yeah. You know? A lot of what we're doing in the studio too is, um, to take, you know, taking some of the ethical stuff off the table by training it on our own work. Uh, exactly. and then, um, but and then it is some certain things that are in the pipeline that can be fixed, like removing the little—I forget what they're called—like the support lines and puppets when you're doing yeah, stuff. Yeah, like roto stuff, like, um, or um, or making things you know feel like they're stop actiony. Yeah, um, a lot of times though, it's like not for real time, so that's why yeah. I'm like, ah, oh, if there's a real time solution that there you guys already yet. knew of. I mean, the, the, this press, the processing of those is pretty intense still. I think that's on a phone now, and videos yeah. keeps on making it. But faster. it doesn't like take that long, so you know, if it's like a few seconds, it still feels pretty good, you know, close to real time. Thanks. Uh, thanks. I guess we'll do one more here, and that's it. Yeah. So it's amazing to me that Blenders is free. Yeah. That you can can you do most of everything with just Blender, or do you need to learn all the software? Bl no, Blender you don't, is all, I I use Blender in, almost exclusively. Okay. And uh, for all of the creative part, the only parts that are Game engine, like seriously game engine focused, are the state machine style things like puppets that have physics involved, or um, if you want to like pre-animate a bunch of things and then puppet the puppeteer them by triggering them, or things like that. That's very game engine-y. You need that's Unreal or Unity or another engine to do that. But the visuals, uh, most of my life is actually like mocking up things to try to get you know, shows and features and projects off the ground. So I do all that in Blender and it's fine because it's just like a preview. In the know. free assets, you can you import free asset and really use them? Sure. Like to an extent. I mean, when you're doing it you have to. with what we're doing, it's like there's a version, like we got to make our stuff for sure. Like if we want to, if we want to make a show down the road, we can't be using any, anyone else's assets. But like that's, that's just, once you're making something, yeah. But like for pitching and for like coming up with ideas, it's amazing to just sketch fab in stuff and um, or use mega scans or whatever. It works great. Yeah. Thank you. I think it's a cool tool. Yeah. It's a, it's closer to that workbench thing than it ever was before. So anyway, thank you very much. Thanks, guys.